The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through mission, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. The scripture reading for this morning is from a portion of Ruth 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it, and say, If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me, that I may know. For there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. I will redeem it. The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also require Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Then Boaz said, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native people. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephratah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. He went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more than... Seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Thank you, Jen. Good morning. If you're new here, my name is Jared Huffman. I'm on staff here with Restoration Southside. Uh, and it's my privilege to be here with you this morning. I appreciate Ben preaching for me the last couple of weeks uh, so that I could get some rest with my family. As much rest as you can with five children and two twins. So uh, we did have a sweet break, and uh, I'm so excited to be back at it. So um, if you would, keep your order of worship in front of you. We're going to be highlighting a few of the verses there. But I wanted to make a couple of comments before we dive in. You know, uh, I don't think the book of Ruth would do very well nowadays if it was uh, published. Um, At first glance, it looks a little bit like this woman cleans herself up, and she makes herself smell good, and she goes and lays by the feet of this man, which is an interesting way of asking somebody out, and she gets herself a sugar daddy. And now the women 
these days would be like, uh, she doesn't need a sugar daddy. He should be like, lay by her feet, and she's the one who's the breadwinner. And I just want to take it out of that context now and say that this is God's word and that it has principles and realities for us about who God is and who we are. But just because the Bible says something doesn't mean the Bible endorses something. Because the Bible spans so much history, sometimes the Bible will speak of something and it's not necessarily endorsing something. Like slavery, the Bible will talk about slavery and it's in no way endorsing slavery. And so I just want you to understand that here, that this was the customs of this time. That this woman would have been vulnerable and needed help, needed a man, a rescuer, a redeemer for her protection. It doesn't necessarily endorse that at all times and in all customs, this is the way that people should operate. Boaz is not the sugar daddy here. In fact, it's actually a story of how God used to protect those that were vulnerable. Because you can see through what is uncomfortable for our culture is God looking to protect those that don't have protection. And that's sort of the story in which we find ourselves. Another thing I want you to see is that if you were to read this story in the Hebrew Bible, which I know all of you are looking forward to doing, if you were to read this in the Hebrew Bible, guess what story comes just before this? Proverbs, and in Proverbs 31, the life of a godly woman. And so it's almost as if Proverbs 31 comes and talks about this godly woman who's industrious and hardworking, who makes money and sells land, who is a delight to her husband and children. And then that story comes to an end, that description of a godly woman, and then Ruth comes. It's as if Ruth is demonstrating just how a godly woman works in real life. Now with those things aside, let's pray and ask God to bless our study of His Word this morning. Pray with me. Lord, would you have mercy on me, a sinner? We thank you and praise you for your Word and your Holy Spirit. Even though there's things that don't connect with us culturally anymore about the Bible, we know that because of your Spirit, the Bible is alive and active. You'll actually move in our hearts so many thousands of years later because of your Word written so long ago. I pray, God, that you would meet us in this story. As we conclude our study of Ruth, that you would bring realities to our eyes that feel far away. So make your son Jesus look big to us. I pray for those that have never encountered your son that by your Holy Spirit they might encounter you this morning. For so many of us who have wandered off or gone cold, I ask that you would give us a new perspective this morning. It's in the matchless name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Many of you watch The Office starring Michael Scott watch it on Netflix when you're trying to rest and go to sleep. You watch it at your desk when your boss isn't paying attention. You watch it on your phone. One of my uh, favorite episodes is the one where Michael Scott is trying to make a local ad for Dunder Mifflin. And corporate has sent these professional advertisers in to make a video and they're going to engage with Michael Scott, a regional manager for us, 
paper company. And yet Michael has all these big plans for what they'll do with this commercial. And so they're like, well, tell us what you got, man. We're excited. Tell us what you got. And Michael says this, a little girl in a field holding a flower. We zoom back to find that she's in the desert and the field is an oasis. And we zoom back further. The desert is a sandbox in the world's largest resort hotel. And we zoom back further. The hotel is actually the playground for the world's largest pigs. But we zoom back further, and they stop him. And they're like, okay, okay. I can tell that your time is very valuable. And he says, actually, I don't get paid by the hour anymore, but thank you. I get paid by the year. And the guy says, that all sounds really Michael gets the fact that when you're telling one story, if you zoom back, it actually sort of enhances the significance of the story. You thought only one thing was going on, but actually as you zoom out, there's something else going on. It matters how you're looking at the story, when you're looking at the story. It matters uh, what eyes you bring to the context. That's what Ruth is about. You feel like you're hearing some story about Naomi, this woman who's lost her husband, lost two sons, and how terrible her life can be. But you zoom out and what you really see is it's the story of the beauty of how Ruth will love Naomi, sacrificially and at her own cost. And you zoom out and you realize there's something more going on with the line, the family that leads to David. Have you ever played with your phone on portrait mode. I actually like portrait mode. It makes me look less like James Corden, and so I really like it. But have you ever looked on your phone while you were playing in portrait mode, and it keeps zooming in? You know how it zooms in, and it focuses on one thing, and then in the out behind it, it's supposed, it's supposed to get less and less clear. It's supposed to be purposely fuzzy. And sometimes when you're taking a portrait shot, you're taking the shot, and you're looking at it, but it's zooming in on the wrong thing. Friends, the reason I tell you that story about Michael Scott and about the iPhone is that I think most of our lives end up us being zoomed in on the wrong thing. We can't quite possibly understand how the story could get good. We can't possibly understand how the, the story could be redemptive because we're zoomed in and from our perspective in that moment it feels like things are hard. They're difficult. They won't let up. I mean, imagine things from... Naomi's perspective, even from the first chapter, she says, God has been, God has made me bitter. God is not providing for me. God is not taking care of me. She's lost her husband, her sons. And she says, I'm bitter now. The story can't possibly be good from here. Friends, what is that in your life? Maybe it's the loss of a job and you thought, I don't know where the story leads from here, but it's pretty desperate. Maybe it's brokenness in your relationship with a significant other or with a spouse. And you think, I don't know how it's going to get any better when it's this bad off. Maybe it's the things that you've done sinfully and shamefully and you think, if God did care about me, I'm sure He doesn't anymore. How could the story change? Ruth gives us this opportunity to zoom out and to remind us maybe we've been focused on the wrong character. 
maybe we've been focused on the wrong things. We all struggle to find our place in God's story with our shame and our pain and things that seem very mundane to us in the line of life. Things that are mundane, things that are hurtful for us, things that we're embarrassed about. We all have a hard time finding our place in God's story, but perhaps if we could zoom out and focus on something or someone different, our perspective might change. The first word this morning is that God works through every moment. God works through every moment. If you'll glance with me down into the text in the back of your order of worship, Verses 11. Now this is the blessing that they're going to give to Boaz who has stood up for those, stood up for this household, stood up for Naomi and for Ruth. And the people who were witnesses at the gate and elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together build up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Epaphra. And be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give this house down the line. Ruth is this short book, four chapters long, and its main place in the history of redemption is to show God is in control, even when it doesn't look like it, through mundane things and through pain. And to say that God has a plan for His people even when it doesn't look like it. That's the main point. And so why in this tiny book would it bring up Tamar? Did you see it in there? For those of you who are new to the Bible, it's perfectly understandable. You wouldn't know such a name. It's not a famous name in Scripture. But this is where Tamar is famous in Scripture. In this sweet blessing they're giving to Boaz, they mention this woman's life. And this is who... It's, it's referencing, and this is Genesis 38, if you want to write it down and look at it later. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah, to the men who were with him, shearing his sheep, and his friend Hira the Adalmite went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Enneha, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that, though Shelah had now grown up, she had not be given to him as his wife. Then Judah, this is the father-in-law, saw her. He thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. She says, and what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. This is what all the ladies want. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, what pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand. She answered, so he gave them to her and she slept with her and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on the widow's clothes again. It's this inkblot in Genesis, this embarrassing story where Judah, Judah sleeps with his 
daughter-in-law but doesn't know it because she's dressed like a prostitute and they have a child together and that child, oh yeah, happens to be in the line of Jesus. God has this way of taking embarrassing family moments, embarrassing personal moments, and weaving them masterfully into the beauty of His story and pointing us to Christ. Why does He do that? This is Judah and Tamar. What's the other kind of way that you hear about Judah in the Bible? The lion of the tribe of Levi. Judah is famous for those two things. Tamar and the fact that Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Levi. It's as if Jesus all the way through the Old Testament and all the way through the New Testament is showing you what kind of people He's coming for. And it's not the people that have it together. It's not the people that are beautiful. It's not the people that have nice and neat family stories. It's for people who are a mess. The lion of the tribe of Judah is for the people like Judah and Tamar. And that's why they put it into this story about Ruth. It seems so strange. It shows that God works through ugly moments to bring good. If you look at Matthew 1 and you look at all the women named in the genealogy of Jesus, all the women that are actually named, it wasn't even common to name women in the genealogies. But if you look at them, guess who it is? Tamar? The one who dressed up like a prostitute and slept with her father-in-law. Rahab? The one who was actually a prostitute. Ruth, the Moabitess, and Bathsheba, one who was part of the story in which David's kingdom unwinds. Why would Matthew put these four embarrassing stories in the, in the genealogy? It's because he's reminding us one, several things. One, God is for women. He's for their place in history. Jesus treats women counterculturally more beautifully than anyone in his time. It shows us that God is for outsiders, that even at these times, God is bringing in the Moabitess. Sam Dugan says this in Matthew 11, that showing us that Jesus is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Friends, God works through ugly moments. God works through ugly moments. That's why He brings up Tamar. It's to remind you, whatever you've done, whatever the ugliness, whatever the perversion, whatever the nastiness of your story or of your family story, God can bring good out of it. That's what He's constantly doing. And what about you who feel forgotten by God? Particularly because of ugliness. Maybe you've broken a vow. Maybe you've run back to the same addiction over and over again, even though you swear you would not. Maybe you've you've had a line drawn and you've stepped over it again and again and again. And you might be tempted to think, God cannot bring good out of my story anymore because I didn't play by the rules. Friends, God is used to bringing good out of people and out of stories who are not playing by the rules. The story of a neighborhood. I have friends in ministry from a long time ago and from a different place. They had trouble and tension in their marriage and ultimately one of them stepped out on the other. Made a mess of their life. 
made a match of their marriage, made a match of their experience of everyone around them. And it would be tempting to think when something like that happens, the story can't get better. At least not that story. Those couples from long ago and from a different place now spend their time ministering to those couples right now. Because God is good all always day. If you're experiencing something ugly, zoom out. Maybe it's not the end of the story. Maybe, maybe you don't quite know where it's headed. Maybe you don't know what God will do yet. God works through every moment. Now here, I want you to be astute listeners, friends of restoration. So just because I have told you something that is theologically accurate and helpful to you in a sermon does not mean that you take that same insight and you drop it on someone in pain. Here's what I mean. If one of your friends comes to you and says, hey, my husband cheated on me, you don't say to that person, how excited are you to watch what God has done in your see the difference? It's true. It's worth clinging to. It's worth reminding. It's worth reminding yourself of. It's worth embodying for others. But that doesn't mean that you take something that's broken and you polish it for someone in pain. And I just want you to understand the difference. I want you to be astute listeners when we're dealing with the Scripture. God brings good out of ugly situations. Just watch. If you're in an ugly situation, perhaps there's more good coming than we can possibly imagine. Can we just zoom out and listen? He also works not just in ugliness, but he works in the incredibly mundane. Did you notice in the scripture that the guy says, okay, I'll buy it, I'll do it. And so I thought I would tell, of it, tell you of it and say, if you will read verse 4, if you're following along. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. I will redeem it. The kinsman redeemer, I hadn't noticed. I studied this passage and I hadn't noticed. The kinsman redeemer first says, I will do it. And then he hears about the fact that he's going to have to take on Elimelech's line, which means if he takes on this thing, he will have to have Ruth as his wife. And then when Ruth has a child, it will be Elimelech's line, not his own line. And Elimelech's line will receive his prosperity and his wealth, receive his inheritance. And so he says, oh, okay, never mind, I'm not going to do it. I'm out. You do it. The reason I point that out to you is just such a small detail. It's like way back in Ruth 2, when Ruth finally goes and looks around of what she's going to do for a job, and she looks around and the Bible says, it happens to find herself in the field of Boaz. Just happens. One of two dudes on the whole earth who can redeem her story, and she just happens to find him. Ruth is a story of how the mundane in life, seemingly meaningless, God can use to One slight change of mind, and it rewrites the importance of the story. God works in the mundane. Some of you are feeling like you're living in the mundane. Don't, for one second, think God has forgotten you. 
or that the mundane things in your life can't be used to bring you joy. I don't know what they are. I don't know what they look like. I don't know what it's going to mean long term. But what the Bible is constantly reminding us through Ruth is what seems mundane to us, God can make wonderful. Not just in the short term. Like, oh wow, it's not going to be that first redeemer. It's going to be the second redeemer. It's a different guy, but also in the long term. You know how the story started. It said, remember, we're in the days of the judges. In the time when we were still in the land of judges. What happens is, is the judges keep coming in, keep helping God's people. God's people keep returning over and over again to their idols. To things that are not good for them. And they keep running back to them. And ultimately, they come and they say, we want a king. We want to be like the other nations. That hasn't even happened yet. They haven't even worked all the way through the judges yet. They haven't even come to the place where they ask for a king yet. Which is actually a rejection of God. So, get this straight. They're still in the time of judges. Israel's acting unbelievably disobediently. They haven't yet come to the place where they're going to reject God and ask for a king. And yet God is crafting this story so that when they finally are done with judges, and when they finally ask for a king, and when that king shows himself unworthy, God gives them a good king. Do you see this? God is not just working in the small and short term, but He's working in the long term. Israel doesn't even know they need a king yet, and God is providing them one, even though it means they're rejecting Him. God is meeting His people's needs before they know what their need are. Be comforted that God can meet your needs even before you know what they are. And what are the needs you roll around in your head as if they cannot possibly be met? They cannot possibly be met by God. But friends, He's three steps ahead of you. He thought He's gonna, He, he knows how He's going to redeem you and meet your needs before you even realize it. short term and in the long term. Because Boaz and Ruth are Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. Rankin Wilborn says of this passage, when you look down the time, the mundane, and also the long term, start to realize about Ruth and Boaz's life and also about your life that nothing is wasted. Nothing of your stories ever wasted. If you're like me, you have sat and said, how is this ever going to make sense? How is this ever going to be redeemed? How is this ever going to bring me comfort? And we don't know right now. We just hold on to the reality that when we're dealing with someone this loving and this powerful, nothing in your life will be wasted. feel it now, but you will see it at some point. Whether on earth or someday in glory. So God works the ugly moments. God works through mundane moments. And God works through moments of mourning. God works through moments of need. The whole story, remember, is about the sadness of Ruth. Excuse me, the sadness of Naomi. 
In chapter 1 of Naomi, she's lost her husband, she's lost her two sons. She's now alone in a foreign land, and she has no prospects financially. But she says, call, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me bitter. For the Lord has dealt harshly with me. Then look with me at 16 in the early verses. Sorry, 14. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And let his name be Zion in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his mother. Listen to this. And the women of the neighborhood gave him, gave him the name saying, A son has been born to Naomi and they named him Obed, who is the father of Jesse, Adam's slave. So Naomi starts in the first chapter and she has empty arms. Empty of a husband's love. Empty of a son's protection. She's bitter because God has dealt harshly with her. And the story comes to an end and she's holding a baby in her lap. And in other verses in this text she says, She, Naomi, has a child. Not Ruth has a child. Not Boaz has a child. But Naomi has a child because she's going to be this child's nurse, this child's nanny to take, after, to take care of him. The point is, is that there are often times when you look at your empty hands and think, I don't know how they'll ever be full again. I don't know how they'll ever be full again. And God works in those moments of mourning. I want you to remember this. And again, this isn't to beat each other up or counsel. This is for you to have as a backdrop a theology of the Bible and of life. For you to know what's going on. But what God is doing in you may be very important for those who are near you. What God is doing in you, or you might say to you, may be very important for those who are near you. Honestly, this is the danger of the bitterness of Naomi. She's so overwhelmed with her own story, she can't possibly conceive of God doing something through her. She's so overwhelmed with her own story, she can't possibly conceive of God doing something through her. Friends, I say this gently. In what ways are you still trumpeting the loss of your story so much, so loudly, that you might not be able to hear the cries of those around you? As you would imagine, in our house, things are so loud and so chaotic. There are people screaming with laughter, screaming with evil, screaming in pain. There are people on different sides of the house screaming for different reasons. There are people chasing each other. There are people who know how to work Alexa now, so they turn on music all the time, all the way to volume 10. And every once in a while, like just yesterday, we'll lose something. We'll, we'll say, okay, everybody stop. We're looking for Aaron's headphones. And the new headphones, you can actually find them if you make them church. And so we'll say, I got all the big three in the kitchen. And I'll say, hey, everybody, be quiet. And one says, wait, why are we being quiet? And I'm like, everyone, stop talking. And someone says, what are we missing up there? And before my head explodes into a million pieces, I say, no more words. 
And everybody goes, okay, guys, let's be quiet. And the noise is so loud, I can't hear what I'm listening for. I can't hear that something might be happening. Friends, is the pain in your life so noisy, so loud, you can't possibly hear that someone else needs your presence. Someone else needs your love. Someone else needs your arm to be wrapped around them. Sometimes things are so loud that we're missing on other ways that God has called us to love. There's a story from a movie I like called, the movie's called Charlie Wilson's War, and it's not important to the sermon, but it's got Tom Hanks in it. And at one point, he's told this parable by Philip Seymour Hoffman. And he says, a boy is given his horse, given a horse on his 14th birthday. Everyone in the village says, oh, how wonderful. But a Zen master who lives in the village says, we'll see. Time goes by and the boy falls off the horse and breaks his foot. And everyone in the village says, oh, how awful. And the Zen master says, we'll see. The village is thrown into war later on and the young men have to go to war. But because of the broken foot, the boy stays behind and doesn't have to go to war. And everyone says, oh, how wonderful. And the Zen master says, we'll see. Jared has left Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church and he's taken Ben with him. How awful. We'll see. Jared and Ben have worked to plant a church on the south side. How wonderful. We'll see. Ben has ousted Jared and taken over Restoration South Side. How awful. We'll see. Oh, Malon and Kilon have died, and so has their dad. Naomi is left alone. How awful. We'll see. Oh, my goodness, Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus born in Bethlehem, has been murdered. And all his friends have abandoned him in the night. How awful. ugly, broken, mundane things and brings life and light and hope out of them. The Lord gives her a son. The Lord meets her need. The Lord restores Elimelech's line. Friends, sometimes it's so hard to see what's going on And so we're making conclusions about ourselves and God at all times. And I understand that. But what I want you to get into the practice of doing, which is what Ruth is telling you to do, is to pause and to zoom out and to say, maybe the story's not over. Maybe there's good yet to come. Our twins, Connor and Cohen, who are now two years old, when they were in utero, they can take pictures and they can do ultrasounds. And during one of the ultrasounds, 
they noticed something. The Connor only had a two-vessel cord when you're supposed to have a three-vessel cord. So we did what every parent does, which is go find the worst stuff on the Internet you can possibly find to terrify yourself. And it's nasty stuff to do. The stuff that is life-altering. The stuff that keeps you up at night. The stuff that makes you feel like you're never going to be whole. Your life's never going to be the same. By the time the twins were born, in those first few moments, I'm just waiting for the news. I'm waiting for how bad the news is about to get. They come out. Connor is white as can be, paper white. Cohen is bright red, like beet red, because Cohen has been stealing Connor's red blood cells at the end. That's why it's fine if Connor bullies Cohen, because he's beet red. sitting there and I'm wondering, is this what we were waiting for? Is this the bad news? They say, oh no, this happened to twins in the last couple of weeks. It's fine. Both of them look great. Both of them are exactly where they're supposed to be. Now you would imagine over the last two years with the chaos of my home that I've described, it would be hard to have a good attitude. Over the last two years, the leaving of an amazing job at Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, that it would be hard to have a good attitude. But since I was afraid that there was something seriously wrong with my twins, and we found to God's glory that nothing is the matter with them. Nothing is the matter with them. It's been the easiest thing to have a good attitude in raising my sons. Yes, there are hard moments, but I feel like I'm in a good mood about the twins. People are like, how are you doing? And I'm like, it's awesome. And part of that is because I was expecting something so much worse, and God provided Now, I'm not saying that I want you to take, walk around and take on the perspective that horrible things are going to happen all the time so when they don't happen, you can be happy. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that perspective changes everything. And so whatever it is that you're fighting with, battling with, overwhelmed by, if you could zoom out and take the perspective that maybe I don't know everything yet. Maybe God's not done writing the story. Maybe there's more yet to come just as there was for Ruth, just as there was even when Jesus was crucified, the end of the story is not yet here. Friends, I want you to know that. I want you to trust in that, that you don't always know what's going on. And God is working through pain. God is working through shame. God is working through the mundane of things. God is working in the short term and God is working in the long term. God is going to provide for His people. And if we can zoom out and wait, it might change our perspective on things. Let's pray. people in this room bearing burdens I can't possibly imagine. I pray that you give them the grace to take a breath and to zoom out. Knowing they don't know everything yet. They don't know the end of the story yet. And that 
God works through broken things and mundane things to bring good to His people. Help us to be a people who trust, even though we can't see, we know that you do, and so we rest. God, make it so. In Jesus' name.